uh, as we get ready to go into the Word of God together, let's pray together again for just a moment. Father, we do thank you that you're ready for this moment. You're ready for our gathering. Jesus is the head of this body. You are joyfully prepared to be in our fellowship, to be in our teaching, to be in our worship. Father, to be in each of our hearts individually through your spirit speaking to us. And we pray for that, Father, that as we've been singing these songs of worship and we'll sing more later, as we listen to your word and think about your word, study your word, that your spirit within us would be taking us forward. Father, that we would each right now in, in our own thinking and choosing, we would each agree with you. We desire to draw closer in loving you. We desire to go further in loving each other. We desire to understand your purposes more. We desire to trust and cooperate with your will even more. We desire to understand your promises so that we stand on, so that we act on. So, Father, we choose our agreement with you and the things that you purpose to accomplish today through the blessing of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit. We agree on these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing to look, um, as Deborah just read for us, we're continuing to look at the work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and disciples in, in uh, Acts chapter 2. And uh, you may be able to see the sermon title was um, The Jerusalem Crusade. And I bet many of you share this memory, but... I can remember when I was a kid, every now and then, my mom would say, oh, we're going to watch TV tonight because there's a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles, or there's a Billy Graham crusade in New York, or there's a Billy Graham crusade in Atlanta. And we would watch on TV a Billy Graham crusade in whatever city his ministry was in. And then I remember uh, he, at some point, came close enough to where we live. I'm young enough. I was young enough that I'm not sure if he came to San Antonio or we drove to Dallas or Houston. But one way or another, then my family and I were there at that Billy Graham crusade. And whether I was watching it on TV or whether I was sitting at home, I mean, sitting at home watching TV or, or sitting in the stands, one of the things that always deeply moved me, even as a young, semi-ignorant child, was the amazement of watching this man, gifted by the Holy Spirit, by, by the Holy Spirit for evangelism, just preach the Word of God. And if uh, any of you are familiar with Billy Graham's sermons, they're very simple. They're very straightforward. He wasn't trying to get into complex descriptions and details and arguments about doctrine. Over and over and over again, in a variety of ways and with a variety of analogies or stories or backdrops, he just presented the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. And then I'm sure as many of you saw, uh, he preached for 15 or 20 minutes, and then they would sing about 27 choruses of Just As I Am. And by the thousands men and women and children would pray to receive jesus christ as their lord and savior by the thousands of a simple sermon the holy spirit would stir hearts and those men women and children would say yes to the holy spirit and even as a kid i would i would almost be stunned by that sermon doesn't predict this outcome. Now, in some ways, Billy Graham was an incredible preacher. Uh, I remember uh, numerous times after Billy Graham crusade, we'd be talking about, man, I think, I think Billy Graham's eyes would bring me to repentance. Uh, he had such an incredible penetrating stare. But that still didn't predict 
thousands of people who had been living in sin or living in rebellion or, or just living away from God by the thousands deciding that this was the moment they were going to surrender their heart to God. And now we're at a sermon in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem crusade, the first crusade evangelistic service. And Peter preaches a pretty simple sermon. And, and for those of you, in fact, who uh, maybe didn't know this or missed it, uh, even though we had that Zoom glitch that meant we didn't get to have a service last Sunday, um, that sermon was presented and, and recorded and posted on Tuesday night. Uh, so I would actually encourage you at some point, go back, um, go back to the gbf.org website and, and get that sermon and listen to that sermon. The sermon is profound, but it was very simple. And in fact, in, in Peter's sermon, he makes it real clear that what they were witnessing there that day, what these thousands of men, women, and children from all over the planet were witnessing was God keeping a promise. He had promised that his spirit would be poured out on all mankind. And there weren't just Jews in that crowd. There were devout men and women from all over the planet, all over the civilized world that had come to celebrate the feast in Jerusalem of Pentecost that were there to hear that sermon. And so he points all the way to the, the fulfillment of the promise of, of the promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out all the way to the end of the age when Jesus will return to reign. Looking back at Joel chapter two. So I would encourage you to go back and, and hunt that sermon up. I don't frequently tell people to go hunt up a sermon uh, that I've preached, uh, but I think that sermon fits well in terms of what's coming next here in Acts two. Um, I'm talking about Peter's sermon. So go back and read that and study that or listen to that and, and get a sense of what Peter was doing in that sermon of explaining what was happening, but then also pointing that the point of what was happening was salvation in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is both Lord, God, and Savior. And now, as he has finished that sermon, we, we have this statement in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, and again, there were thousands of people in this audience. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the, of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And I like this, that they're asking, they're asking, what shall we do? So they'd already heard it. There was something about what they were hearing, especially in the work of the Holy Spirit, because Peter was now gifted by the Holy Spirit to be an effective witness and an effective evangelist. And their spirits were touched by that. And they recognized this and that we get to recognize it, too. That every time God speaks. That's an ounce. It requires a response. There is never a time that you and I will be in the word of God. And I'm talking about we're just reading a chapter at night before we go to sleep or having a five minute devotional before we jump in the car and head off to work. Um, there will never be a time we're in the word of God and God is speaking and his word is speaking. And there's no response required. Or somehow God would say, oh, I was just talking. Uh, nothing for you to do anything about. You don't have to pay attention to what I said. He's never just doing idle chit-chat. That every time God speaks, we get to recognize, Father, if you're speaking, a response is required. And these thousands of men and women listening, many of them were moved to that recognition. We have just been told truth that requires a response. And what's amazing is their hearts immediately went there and said, tell us what to do. We're ready to do something about this truth. And Peter gives them two quick answers. He says, repent and be baptized. And yet there's a whole lot buried in that, as we're going to see here. Because 
he's actually saying something deeper than just feel bad about your sins, feel bad about your past, and then get dunked in water. Because repent means change the whole direction of your life. Change your whole life direction. And the baptism clarifies what that's about. Because be baptized in the name of Jesus. And again, it's worth recognizing, this is Peter's simple salvation presentation. Repent. Get ready to change everything about your life. But within this context, you're going to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And the Jewish culture was very good at this in a way that our American culture is not very deep in, in understanding. That that audience would have understood being baptized in the name of Jesus means I am taking on the full recognition of everything that is, uh, that is buried and identified in Jesus Christ. His identity, his purposes, the purpose of his death, the purpose of his resurrection, the purpose of that death and resurrection that are specifically for me personally. When I bind myself into the name of Jesus, I'm not speaking some kind of magical chant. I, I'm not just agreeing to a religious saying. I'm surrendering my life to the fullness of everything that Jesus was as a Messiah. We talked about this in, in the Tuesday night sermon, that these devout men and women and children would have been familiar with the prophecies of Messiah, would have been familiar with everything the Old Testament said, and so that they're recognizing when Peter says that this Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, I have to buy into everything. And we won't go there right now, but one of the most amazing prophecies of what Messiah is all about is Isaiah 53. It is a profound chapter of prophecy that instead of presenting the Messiah as a king, instead of presenting the Messiah as a conqueror, instead of presenting the Messiah as, as a figure of majesty, Isaiah 52 ends by saying, he's nothing. He doesn't look impressive. In fact, they're going to mangle and mar him so that he's not even recognizable. And Isaiah 53 then makes it really clear. This Messiah is dying to pay the price for our sins. We will be forgiven because he is punished. We will be, we will be healed because he endures our stripes. We will be set free because he's imprisoned. We will be offered life because he was put to death. That, that Isaiah 53 is a profound prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus, even to the point of, of the method of his death, that he would be pierced. He would be stabbed through, and his body would be pierced for our transgressions. And by his suffering, we would be made clean. And so these devout men, women, and children listening to the presentation of Jesus by Peter are buying into that whole package of truth. So they know if I repent and I turn away from my pre-Jesus life and now I'm choosing the Jesus life, very truly, I'm choosing the Jesus life. I'm choosing everything that Jesus is about. I'm surrendering myself to the truth of everything that his death and his resurrection accomplished. I'm surrendering my purposes to his purposes. So that, that simple thing of repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus carries a wealth of meaning so that it rises way above just an empty religious ritual. And he says, you do this, and then it comes with a promise. that each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, in verse 38, for the forgiveness of your sins. So the promise is forgiveness. And then he adds this, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 
and we, I think we here in American culture and American Christianity as, as evangelical believers, um, it may be challenging for us, I think, to comprehend what an earth shattering promise this was. If we look in the Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit is very active in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on prophets for a particular moment and I, or a particular purpose or a particular ministry. Or the Holy Spirit came on a king to anoint them so that they were equipped to lead Israel. But the Holy Spirit could also lead. So we have in, in uh, the story of Saul and David, King Saul and King David, that the Holy Spirit left Saul out of his rebellion, his arrogance, his self-centeredness, his refusal to humble himself under the purposes of God to present his image as more important than obedience to God. The Holy Spirit left Saul, and then later the Holy Spirit came on David. And so these devout Jews from all over the civilized world would have known for, for the last several thousand years, the Holy Spirit, who is very present and very active on earth, is there for a tiny select few, prophets and kings, prophets and kings. And we, we even sang this song. I hope you were paying attention. We sang a song that now God has, has established a kingdom of priests and kings. Now that's us. And so Peter is giving them a profound transformation in the way God's going to work on planet Earth. Because he says, this promise that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and that your sins will be forgiven is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. So there will be people that were not there that day would eventually be brought into this promise. There were people that were not there on that day in history through thousands of years ahead, who would be brought into this promise. And, and many of you know this. Uh, every now and then I ask, and I won't ask right now because I can't see your hands too easily. Um, you know, how many people received Jesus Christ when you were a child? And there's always a pretty good number in our congregation who received Jesus when they were five years old, six years old, seven years old, 12 years old. And I love the fact that, that in this new thing that God is doing, the gift and the promise of the Holy Spirit is offered to children. You, your children, and even strangers who are far, far off, heathen in other lands, unbelievers in the far future. This promise is a worldwide promise that anyone who's willing to repent and be baptized by putting their faith in the fullness of everything that Jesus Christ is and that he accomplished. Those people are brought into this promise. And again, different than the Old Testament, this gift of the Holy Spirit is permanent. If you'll go to Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 13, he's talking this Ephesians 1 is just an incredible array of promises, of things that are granted to us, accomplished for us, given to us when we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians 1.13, he says this, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, just like those men, women, and children in Jerusalem, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, so hearing it wasn't enough. Listening wasn't enough. Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And we could look at other passages that carry that same sense, but that God is promising here in Ephesians, again, a larger expansion of the work of the Holy Spirit than was ever seen on planet Earth. So now God is saying, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, I don't just bring the Holy Spirit to you. I plant that Holy Spirit in you as a mark and a seal that you belong to me. You are my possession. And passage after passage after passage, we won't look out right now that make it real clear. Once I'm his, 
I'm his personally, perfectly, and permanently. I'm his personally, perfectly, and permanently. No one and nothing can ever snatch me out of his hands. I could never fall so far into sin that, that the death of Jesus Christ didn't pay for that sin. I'm now sealed. And I, and I like that word. It means this is a done deal. You are marked and sealed by this Holy Spirit's presence. And now angels and demons can see that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are marked and sealed as God's own possession. And that that mark sealing you as his, the fact that you're his and that no one can ever snatch you away, that brings him glory and honor. That angels and demons both know Reg Larkin never deserved this. God accomplished this. This brings glory to Jesus Christ that his death and resurrection and the promise of his spirit were able to accomplish something for Reg that Reg could have never earned, never earned, that now he is God's forever. And in the spiritual realm, that is a visible truth. Here on the planet, we give testimony to that truth. But in the spiritual realm, it is a visible truth. We are marked as his. And so here he's saying, this is a promise you can count on. If you've done that believing in Jesus Christ, if you heard, you listened, and then you believed, all of these things have been accomplished for you. And again, this is, this is just a quick summary here. He's saying you've received forgiveness and you've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the whole rest of the New Testament carries out all the other detail and unpacks all the other gifts that, that belong to us through that moment of faith. But I also want to notice this as we go through this passage. In verse 40, Acts 3.40, he says this, And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And that word, exhorting, that is, a, that is a powerful word. Because it means it's a passionate persuasion. A passionate persuasion. That Peter is not cavalier about this. He's not nonchalant about this. He's not just being matter-of-fact and, and factual about it. Well, these things are true. You know, do with it what you want. He is passionately persuading them, urging them, please listen to this and do something about it. Please listen to this and make a choice to surrender to these truths and believe in these truths. And if you'll turn her over to, to 2 Corinthians 5, we see this same heart in Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 20. He says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And we could actually look at quite a few other passages. So Paul pretty regularly uses words like this. I urge you. I beg you, I plead with you, take into account this truth and do something with it. So that both Peter and Paul are setting up several layers of, of modeling for us that we get to recognize. I have something worth sharing with people. And again, not everybody has the gift of evangelism, but we are all called as witnesses. And that every now and then, there will be a moment where, where God will say, I want that person to see and hear in you the passion of how important this is. I can remember 
actually very vividly. I can remember when I was a teenager and, and I had just recently come back into my own fellowship with God and I was witnessing to a friend and I was just so deeply moved. I just started crying. I started crying so, so deeply. Now, first of all, the fact that I started crying won't surprise you guys, <laughs> but it surprised me at that moment. It surprised me that I'm, I'm inviting her to accept Jesus Christ. And it so deeply moved me that this was a crucial moment for her. That I was just weeping while I tried to speak through my tears and invite her to accept Christ. She began weeping with me. I think first she was just crying because I was crying and it freaked her out. But eventually she was crying in repentance. And she was crying in, in prayer to receive and accept Jesus Christ. Uh, we were not a very neat moment. This, this would not have been a good moment for a movie uh, because we both needed a lot of Kleenex at that moment. But the passion of that moment was real and, and the persuasion of that moment was real. And the Holy Spirit accomplished something that only he, only he could accomplish. And he's working through Paul. He's working through Peter. He's working through you. He works through me. To say, sometimes I want you to be passionate. Don't treat this like it's just an intellectual debate. Don't be so cavalier or so matter of fact about this that you do not fall on your face sometimes in heartfelt passion, whether you cry or not. People show emotion in different ways. The passion is the point, not whether or not you're crying. That there is a passionate desire for the salvation of those we love and pray for and witness to. And that Peter was expressing that passion. And there's another layer to this. All of those words, I beg of you, I plead with you, I urge you, I exhort you. All of these persuasion words recognize something that we've already seen in this group of men and women in Jerusalem. And it's the recognition, I'm putting something in front of you, but you have to make a choice. When God rescued Israel from slavery, he still put in front of them, he still said, now choose this day whom you will serve. You've seen my power. You, you've seen the incredible awesomeness of what I can do to rescue you and, and to protect you and to defeat your enemies. You've seen me bring you across dry land on the Red Sea. You've seen me bring you across dry land of the Jordan River. You have seen me do miraculous things. But here's, here's the deal. Everything I've done waits for one more thing. You choose. I've chosen you. I've done all this stuff for you. I've witnessed to you. I've shown myself to you. And every one of us who's, who's listening and participating in this study this morning, that gets to be part of our understanding and part of our heart and our willingness and our response toward God is, Father, I want to make sure I'm listening when you speak. And then I want to be ready to choose that when your spirit urges me, I say yes. When your spirit puts something in front of me to do, I do it. And Father, there are times, and this is really true, there are times when what you put in front of me to do will be joyful to do. There are times when you put something in front of me to do, and it'll be fun to do. It will be rewarding and enriching for me to even participate in the thing you put in front of me. But Father, I want my heart to be wise enough for this, to recognize that sometimes you will put something in front of me to do, and the doing of it may be the hardest thing I've ever chosen. The follow-through may be the hardest journey I've ever set out on, to do the thing that pleases you. But that with this group of thousands in the first Jerusalem crusade, we would recognize when the voice of God speaks, when the, when the Spirit urges and pleads and begs and, and seeks to persuade us, that we want to choose hearts that say, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. And, and Peter at this moment is exhorting them to make a choice. And then we continue to read this back in Acts chapter 2. I'll start at 40 again. With many other words... He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, 
be saved this from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And I think it was Lily that read for us a little earlier uh, from John 14. That she read for us the passage where Jesus said, you know, what I do, whoops, my, my screen disappeared. Where he said, what I do, you'll do. That was in John 14. But then he said something else. He said, what I do, you'll do. But he said, sometimes what you do will be even greater than what I've done. And I have known men and women through the years, maybe some of you have too, that they took that promise and they went and they went and sometimes did foolish things, uh, sometimes uh, pursued foolish teachers because what they wanted was the flashbang special effects that Jesus had done to be greater. Well, if Jesus raised two or three people from the dead, I should be able to raise 10 or 12. If Jesus healed a blind man, I should be able to heal a whole flock of blind men. If Jesus fed 5,000 men plus their wives and children, I should be. And so we can take the, the visibly impressive miracles of Jesus. And if we make that the point, I think we're really missing the heart of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm doing those miracles to give testimony to the truth of who I am. But the most important thing I'm here to accomplish is salvation. And if we miss that, and that was actually the point of Peter's sermon, the point of all this miraculous stuff of the Holy Spirit speaking through all of your own languages, through the men, of, men and women of Galilee who never learned those languages, it's not so that you can also go do incredible language interpretations. It's for salvation. It's because God is desiring to rescue men, women, and children out of the clutches of Satan, out of an eternity of doomed to hell. And he's rescuing those men, women, and children to be his. And then to plant that Holy Spirit in them, to mark them as his, and then to have them dwell with him for eternity in perfect love and joy. That's the salvation. That's the greatest purpose that Jesus was ever about. Now, we know, and we've talked about this before, practically everybody in our fellowship, and maybe literally everybody in our fellowship, has seen God perform genuine, visible miracles. Often miracles of healing. We've certainly, all of us, seen, I think, miracles of provision, miracles of protection. Um, Carrie and I were just talking recently that my life and, and my daughter's life we, we get to tell story after story after story that is true, that seems to be God just saying, Reg stepped in it again. I'm going to have to protect him. Aaron is at risk again. I'm going to have to protect her. And where we get to see the hand of God miraculously protect us. And many of you have seen those miracles of protection, miracles of provision, miracles of healing. And we absolutely get to honor God and praise him. And we get to pray for those things with faith. But we dare not think that those are the greatest miracles. Those are wonderful. But the greatest miracle is to watch a child. Pray to receive Jesus Christ. And begin a lifelong journey. I'm sorry of walking with God. How awesome is that? To see a man or a woman who has lived decades in sin and rebellion bow their heads or lift their heads and put their faith in just this Jesus. And then to watch repentance actually happen in their life. They didn't just take on a new belief and they keep living the way they were living. To see transformation in their life as they become a son or daughter of God who listens to the Holy Spirit and goes to do what the Holy Spirit speaks. That a son of hell, a daughter of hell, 
has become a son or daughter of the living God. That is the greatest miracle. And different from a miracle of healing or a miracle of protection or a miracle of provision, this is the miracle that lasts for eternity. And we know that in Jesus' ministry, he preached to thousands. And in 2 Corinthians 15, we even have uh, Paul's recollection that at one point after his resurrection, Jesus sat and visited and spoke to over 500 of the brethren. So not just 500 random people, but 500 people that were already believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus taught them and spoke with them after his resurrection. And Paul even says, and most of them are still alive. So the vast majority of those 500 people may have still been in Jerusalem at this point so that they could keep giving fresh testimony. And 120 of them were right there in the upper room to receive the Holy Spirit. But those numbers, 500 and 120, those numbers, not in any sacrilegious way, those numbers were just left in the dust. Peter preached one sermon, spoke persuasively and with exhortation and passion and urging. We have here, that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. The 3,000 men, women, and children that had just moments before belonged to the enemy are now doomed, uh, in a sense, destined for an eternity with God. 3,000 men, women, and children out of one sermon. And that would continue to be true. That wasn't the only time we'll see that happening in Acts. But what we're going to see is that God takes fishermen and he takes tax accountants and he takes people who drag Christians into imprisonment and, and have them killed. God takes all those people and he accomplishes this greater thing. They can become witnesses and out of their witness, we see the fruits of salvation. Men, women, and children are saved again and again and again. And whether it's one person praying with one person and that one person eventually comes to accept Christ, or whether some of you one day preach to thousands and you see thousands come to Christ, we now have this Holy Spirit that gifts us for majestic purpose. And we're going we're gonna to keep looking at this here because now those 3,000 people do something. Let's go back to Acts 2, starting in verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we now have here, again, the continuation of this process that God is saying, after I brought these people together and they believed, they now lived out lives of devotion says they were devoted, and they were devoted to some specific things. They were devoted to, to receiving the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to breaking bread. And they were devoted to prayer. 
And I'm sure if if uh, the Holy Spirit had had wanted to, he could have added many things to this list. But devoted to teaching, devoted to fellowship, devoted to breaking bread together, devoted to prayer. And I don't know if all of that shows up on your on your screen, but that recognition they weren't just going through routines. They weren't just doing religious habits. That what's being described out of their repentance, out of their believing, out of their being sealed in the Holy Spirit, is that there was a passionate commitment to these things. Devotion means a passionate commitment. It means a disciplined commitment. It means that there is follow through. And so that we get to take from that, again, fresh encouragement, fresh challenge for us is I want to make sure I'm, I'm constantly examining my devotion, my passionate commitment, my disciplined commitment to keep receiving teaching. I want to make sure I'm passionately devoted to fellowshipping with other believers. And as we've gone through this whole COVID-19 craziness and continue to try to figure out how to navigate the waters of getting over it and moving ahead, we get to recognize our fellowship is not broken. Whether we're on the phone, whether we're on Zoom, whether we're on FaceTime, whether we're in person, whether we're in a building, whether we're in some other setting at a park, one way or another, we get to say, you know what, Father, I want to live out a passionate devotion to being connected to the body of Christ. And I don't want any of those things to so frustrate me. So I'll say this. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but I'll say it anyway. I don't like Zoom. Uh, I'm grateful for Zoom. But I so much prefer just face-to-face -face contact. But I'm very glad we have Zoom so that in a time where this distance was imposed, we were ready to stay connected and keep offering teaching and keep fellowshipping. But I also know many of you have, have found ways to fellowship during the week because this Sunday morning is not our full fellowship. It can't be. It literally cannot be our full fellowship. That other believers gathering in homes or other believers gathering for a prayer on online or other believers just gathering to connect somehow through a phone call or whatever, those are wise gatherings. And again, whether it's just one-on-one -on -one or whether it's a group studying something together or praying together, that we get to recognize we will defeat the enemy and we will glorify God and we will live out our legacy as the body of Christ by making sure that we joyfully and passionately pursue every avenue of fellowship that's available to us, that we take care of the fellowship, we nurture fellowship, we protect fellowship. And their devotion gets to challenge us on that, that we want that devotion. It's not an obligation, it's not a rule, and it's not limited to any one method. Every avenue we have for fellowship we get to pursue. Now, we also said breaking of bread, and, and in the context we'll see here a little bit later, this breaking of bread means they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. So this, this recognition that, that Jesus said, whenever you gather and do this, so we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper the first Sunday of every month. There are some churches that celebrated every service. There are some churches that celebrated once a year. There were churches that do it all kinds of different levels. Jesus didn't say how often to do it. There's not one single New Testament command that tells us how often to do it. It's simply that when we do it, that we keep the truths in mind that Jesus was presenting. That his death and the outpouring of his blood and the breaking of his body was our entrance into the new covenant with God. And that his blood represents that new covenant and we're drinking it. His body was broken for us and we accept that broken body. And every time, once a week, once a month, once a year, every time we celebrate it, that we want to go deep into acknowledging our, our surrender, our acceptance, our trust, and our belief in those truths. And that's what these early believers were doing. Pretty frequently, again, it doesn't tell us how frequently, but pretty frequently as they broke bread together, they would do the Lord's Supper as they fellowshiped, as they gathered for teaching, as they gathered for prayer. And again, I, I like this, the recognition, they gathered for prayer. 
And so we have on Sunday morning just one opportunity where, where we do our praise and prayer time as a, as a, a fellowship. Um, and there are times when that is a pretty quick process uh, as we've been sending in prayer requests and then uh, whoever is leading the praise and prayer just addresses those briefly in prayer. But with, sometimes when we're in the fellowship together in the building, that's a long process. And I, I really hope, I, I don't know if any of you have ever felt frustrated at how long that process was. I bet some of you have. Uh, actually, I know some of you have because I've heard it. But I also hope that we would have this. We may be able to find ways to streamline that process. We may be able to find ways to, to not repeat everything twice so that the, the one who's praying gathers those prayers and presents them to God. But we were recognized, but this gathering to share our praises, to share our honor of God, and to share our needs back and forth, so now the body of Christ is informed for prayer, that is not optional for us. And there might be a, a multitude of other formats we could use, but this is the format we're doing that we would recognize, Father, what a precious treasure this is, that we are still gathering for fellowship and the breaking of bread for teaching and for prayer together, that we are fulfilling the original design of how the body takes care of the body, that we gather for prayer, and it is never a waste of time. And he goes on and he says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Wonders and signs were taking place throughout through the apostles. And, and we'll keep seeing that throughout Acts. Uh, and all that they all that believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them. And so this recognition that they were sharing. And it says with those in need. As anyone might have need. And and one of the things that we get to see in the body of Christ and we have seen in our fellowship is that the body of Christ is not a series of islands. The body of Christ is not a series of, of isolated individuals. And that even through some of the distancing that we've had to live with in recent weeks, that we recognize the body of Christ still gets to reach out and take care of need. And whether that's a need of prayer, whether it's a need of encouragement, whether it's a need of fellowship, whether it's a need of finances, that we get to be, Grace Bible Fellowship gets to be a church that keeps growing this. Father, we want to hear from you, from your spirit. We want to hear from others and be ready to notice when there's a need. Now, here, back in Acts, this original Jerusalem church, folks who had stuff were selling it so that they had more to share with those in need. So, we're not told, in fact, we're not commanded. Everybody has to sell their stuff and give it away. So we have in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, actually, if you'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 for just a second. We have this incredible, uh, beautiful command given to the continuing body of Christ. So this is, this is long after the book of Acts in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17, 18, and 19. Where Paul is instructing Timothy, who's the pastor of the church, he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So again, here's, here's Paul now giving a larger instruction to the church. And again, he doesn't say sell everything. What he says is, if you have, be ready to share. Oops. Be ready to share. And if you have a lot, don't 
B. Conceded. But also, don't trust in those riches. Go build spiritual riches. So he's not saying, if you have money, go get rid of it. If you have a bunch of stuff, go get rid of it. But he is clarifying a mindset that as the body of Christ, we get to understand. One of the words in there is enjoy. If God has blessed you, enjoy it. But that we all get this mindset that we hold everything God has given us so lightly that we're ready to share it with someone else in a moment of need, that we hold everything God has given us so lightly, even if we have busted our rear ends to earn that thing, so to speak, that we still recognize, but Father, everything that made it possible for me to earn that thing, that came from you. My health, my opportunity, my strength, my potential, my skills, and even if I, I went to years and years of training to learn that skill, even that opportunity came from you. There is no such thing literally on planet Earth as a self-made man or woman. We get to recognize everything I've been able to accomplish and gain is an expression of the love and the generosity and the provision of God. And I want to accept that understanding so well that at any point God can tap me on the shoulder and say, I need you to share some of that. And we would just say, yes, Father, that will be my honor and my joy to care for someone else through the things that you've provided for me. And, and in some ways, I know I'm preaching to the choir because I've seen that heart and that attitude so many times in this fellowship. And yet at the same time, we recognize, but we get to keep growing now. That we're, we're never so poor, we're never so in need that there cannot be some moment where the Holy Spirit asks us to still share with someone else. And we're never so rich that it would be foolish to share it because we got to hang on to that and protect it. So this mindset that, that God was exhibiting through the first church as they blossomed in Jerusalem, that they were ready to share. They were ready to share sacrificially. That continues to be the mindset. So the method of selling all your stuff, Paul doesn't reiterate the method. But the whole New Testament absolutely reiterates the mindset. We are ready to share. We hold things lightly because we recognize they actually begun, belong to God. They've been entrusted to me for his purposes. Sometimes that's going to include sharing, and I'm ready. I'm willing, and I'm able to share. Now, I like what this, how this ends. We're going to finish with this. Verse 46 and 47 of Acts 2. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And again, in this verse, he's, he's differentiating between breaking of bread and a meal. So there were many meals that they just had a meal. But some of those meals, they also celebrated the Lord's Supper together, and they remembered his death and resurrection as a part of their gathering and their celebration. Praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And the beauty there of recognizing this, this incredible Jerusalem crusade where 3,000 came streaming down the aisles to accept Christ, so to speak, that wasn't the end of the process that now there were 3,000 more witnesses to the truth. And the challenge for you and I is that we recognize, Father, I'm part of that legacy. I am part of that continuing legacy of the church, that whether I'm a child who goes to school, whether I'm an adult who hangs out with my neighbors, or I go to work, or I, or I go to a college, or I go to university, or I, wherever I hang out and be during my day, I want to go as a witness because whether I'm, I'm the evangelist that reaps the harvest or I'm somebody who is sowing seeds 
and I'm and I'm planting the truths and I'm distributing the awareness of Jesus Christ as Lord God Messiah and Savior I'm a part of this legacy so that day by day others are going to keep being saved I get to be a part of that and for some of you I know uh, I've heard this plenty of times some of you would say I have no idea what my spiritual gifts are I have no idea what role I'm supposed to play in and I, I hope if, if you're one of the people who says that, I have no idea what role I'm supposed to play, then I would encourage you to start with this and, and then really start with this. That you would say, I'm going to start being aware, God, even if I have no clue what future roles or gifts you're going to work in me. I'm going to start being more aware of the friends I have that are not believers, of relatives I have that are not believers, of people I bump into at work or school that are not believers. And I'm going to start praying for their salvation. I, I'm going to make a list and I'm going to be devoted to this prayer. I'm going to begin praying for the salvation of people I know that do not yet know Jesus Christ. And I'm going to keep praying for those people diligently and faithfully. And there may become a moment where God opens up a door where you get to share the truth. Or there may be other things God's doing in their life through other men and women who are gifted in different ways. But where the bottom line is, you are now involved in the battle through your prayer. You are immediately involved in the battle so that day by day, others can be saved. Even if you're not sure what your gifts are. Someday you have more clarity on what your gifts are. But even before you know that, that you don't use ignorance about your gifts, as a reason to stay out of the battle for salvation. That you and I get to pray, regardless of our gifting or our, our uncertainty of gifting, we get to be involved in that day-by-day -day salvation of others by how we commit ourselves to enter into the presence of God and intercede for them and pray for the Holy Spirit to be speaking to them and pray for men and women to be brought into their lives that can be a part of that witness that truth will prevail, that lies will start to seem wrong to them, that truth will start to tug on their heart. We get to fight that battle of prayer so that just like these first New Testament believers in Jerusalem, we're involved in that day-to-day -day pursuit of salvation for others. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you that we... We have an incredible legacy behind us. But for all of us who belong to you, we have an incredible destiny ahead of us. And Father, here on planet Earth, that includes the destiny to continue carrying out the legacy. That every single one of us has access and power and authority to be a part of this thing that you're doing on planet Earth. That this is the day of salvation. That for these few thousand years, you are harvesting every man, woman, and child who will agree to believe in your son, to repent and be baptized in the name, the full name and identity and purposes, everything that was accomplished through Jesus Christ, your son. And you harvest these men, women, and children, and you seal them with your Holy Spirit for eternity. And we get to be a part of that. And Father, I pray that we would not see it as a burden. We wouldn't see it as a, a nervous thing that we're not sure what to do. That even if we just start with prayer, we would just start with prayer. We would start. And then as other moments or other opportunities or other, other gifts do unfold, unfold for us, Father, help me and help each one of us to just say, Father, you show me what to do and I'll do. I'm ready to do what I'm hearing from you telling me to do. Father, help us to have that heart that these men and women had. That when they heard your word, they recognized that it required a response and they said yes. Thank you for this incredible grace, Father. Thank you for this fellowship of believers. This gathering of imperfect men and women and children from a variety of backgrounds and education levels and financial strata and all the individual differences we bring to the mix. But we are, we are united in one mind. We belong to Jesus Christ, and we agree to be your witnesses. 
and we agree to love one another as the body of Christ. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.